This message comes from NPR sponsor Total Wine and More. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine and More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. Our guest today, Jay Wellens, is used to operating on tiny brains. Not just brains, but all the parts of a kid's central nervous system, which includes the spine of a fetus he describes as being the size of three grains of rice stacked together. As a pediatric neurosurgeon, Wellens uses amazing advances in medicine to heal and repair children suffering from illnesses and injuries, some caused by car accidents, sports collisions, and increasingly gunshot wounds. But in almost every case, he's also dealing with parents, confronting their worst fear, the prospect of losing a child. Wellens writes that he's cried with parents, sometimes relieved, other times profoundly sad. Dr. Jay Wellens is a professor of neurological surgery at the Monroe Carroll Jr. Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt and the Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He's also medical director of the Surgical Outcomes Center for Kids, which he co-founded, and he's written op-ed pieces for the New York Times. He reflects on his experiences in his memoir titled, All That Moves Us, a pediatric neurosurgeon, his patients, and their stories of grace and resilience. It's now out in paperback. He spoke with Fresh Air's Dave Davies last year. Well, Jay Wellens, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you, Dave. The book is told mostly through cases. You take a chapter and tell us a story. And I wanted to begin with one. This is a while back. You were practicing in Birmingham, Alabama. You get a call from an emergency room physician in, I think, Auburn, which is about 100 miles away. He has a nine-year-old girl who was injured in an auto accident. What does he tell you? Well, it's it's unbelievably bad weather. And, you know, most... uh, you know, most tertiary medical centers have, you know, helicopters that fly back and forth bringing, you know, bringing people in uh, who need to be seen you know, urgently or emergently. And, you know, I get this call one Saturday morning uh, directly to me from an emergency room doctor down in Auburn in the kind of Opelika area of, of uh, Alabama. And he says, you know, I've, I've got this patient and she's an hour and a half out from her injury and you know, the the medevac helicopters aren't running because the weather's so bad. And, you know, Dave, you, you have like two and a half, three hours of this kind of golden window to really intervene. And so the clock is really ticking at this point. And, you know, at the time she was um, around the age of 10, she'd been in this terrible car accident and she had a blood clot on the side of her head and it was pushing on her brain and she'd blown a pupil, which is the sign of that, you know, she was close to herniating, which is where the brain swells so much that, you know, the patient ultimately dies. So this was just a full-on emergency. And at the time in, in Birmingham, I had a picture on my desk of my dad in his flight suit holding his um, helmet. He was um, um, an Air National Guard pilot, and he's standing next to the F-4 that he that he flies. And I look at the flight suit, and I just say, you know, to the ER doc, I'm like, look, are those Blackhawks still flying down there? Because if they are, call the Blackhawks. And he was like, Oh, that's a brilliant idea. Okay, bye. And, and the the idea was that those military pilots will fly in any weather, <laughs> right, in any right. weather. And you know, and so you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, they're here. Uh, so I went down to the ER, and they were just moving her from the gurney to the trauma bay, and there were two of those medevac soldiers there in their flight gear, and they were just dripping with water, you know, because they had just done whatever it took to get that girl to us. And I remember one of the young soldiers. 
I walked up and a nurse said, uh, oh, hey, Dr. Wellens, your patient's here. And I guess maybe one of the young soldiers knew to deliver this patient to Dr. Wellens. And he like immediately snapped to attention. And I was like, Addie, soldier, I should be the one saluting you. You guys have just saved this girl's life. So so you get her to the operating table. Uh, things were pretty critical, right? What was the situation? Well, she had a large blood clot uh, on the side of her head. It was pushing her brain to one side. It was causing her to have what was called hemiparesis or weakness. But her pupil was blown. She was really unresponsive. Again, pupil blown means that there's a lot of pressure inside your head. And so at that point, we needed to get the blood clot out. And so, you know, I had talked to the OR. They were ready. We, you know, one, two, three, got her over to the bed and turned her around and started clipping hair and prepping and making the incision. And when you do these cases on an elective basis, you know, for non-emergent things, you know, you're kind of taking your time to each layer you go in. But in situations like this, you know, the clock is ticking. And so, you know, it's like knife, drill, retractor, scissors, blood clot. You know, it's like it's that fast because you're trying to get it out. And um, and really, once we opened up the, the dura, which is the leathery covering of the brain, the blood clot just kind of blah, blah, just kind of squirted its way out. And it was like um, – almost like a piece of liver. You know, it just, it would congeal and just under so much pressure. And then we could see that little vessel pumping, uh, you know, and so we just stopped it and irrigated and closed her up. And it was, uh, it, it was, it was a good feeling to get that done. There's that moment then after, you know, you've, hopefully you've resolved the problem, but then you got to see the patient respond. How did this little girl do? Well, I remember, you know, it was early in my practice. I remember, you know, getting her back up to the pediatric ICU with our neurosurgery resident who was working with me. And, you know, I just remember sitting next to her bed. Um, you know, she's got a head wrap on, is all these lines and IVs that, that are in people that, you know, we're used to um, in neurosurgery. But I just remember seeing her parents' faces and just how this was their, you know, beautiful child who would, you know, when all the world was young. I mean, just everything was just all the potential. And now everything is just summarized down to this one very dense spot where she was and, you know, where we were waiting to see how she would recover. And, you know, the flicker of the eyes open, that's a that's a miraculous feeling, Dave, you know, to see somebody wake up after something like that. So she was okay. Did you stay in touch with the family after that? Absolutely. You know, she... um. She had some residual weakness um, just um, from how much pressure the blood clot was putting on her brain. And, um, and you know, you follow up patients on, a, you know, you see them back in a few weeks to get their stitches taken out. And then you maybe might see them in six months to get a scan. You know, you, 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 um, you follow them for a finite period of time. And every time I would see her in clinic, you know, it was some milestone accomplished, some amazing thing that she'd done, you know, as she was continuing to grow. And getting on the honor roll or, you know, being the school mascot or, you know, winning a competition. And then and then it was time to discharge her from clinic um, because, you know, other than just me wanting to physically see them and see how well she was doing, it, it really – she didn't need me anymore. And the family continued to, to send clippings and send updates and send messages, you know, until I got an invitation to her wedding, which was kind of amazing, as you can imagine, Yeah. Well, you know, this is the thing. I mean, I, as, a, as a parent, I can only imagine what it would be like to bring your child in, you know, on the door of death and have this miraculous operation, and then they are restored and they proceed with their lives. I would imagine that's something that you would never forget. Do you have a big book of 
<laughs> photos and mementos from from patients you've treated? Yeah, I, I have a I have a big file in a big drawer, and um, um, you know, I'm uh, whenever I need to be um, lifted up or grounded, you know, or, or one of the two, I guess I, I will always pull that file out and just flip through it and just think, you know. This is why we do what we do because, you know, it's late nights. It's a lot of hours for the residents and for us in the field. But but that that degree of gratitude, I mean, I've experienced it as a patient. I've experienced it as a parent and I've experienced it as a surgeon. And so as I've gotten 20 years into this job, into this career, you know, I'm when somebody tells me thank you for, you know, a particular clinical course that has done well, you know, or a miracle that's been answered or however you want to say it, you know, I really understand that. I really try to let that wash over me in the way that it deserves, you know, that, that gratitude for, um, you know, for their child being okay or their child making it through or, or helping them navigate a tough situation where their child did not live, which is an incredibly difficult thing too. I'd say most of the stories that you relate in the book are of successful outcomes, but not all. And you write about a girl early in the book uh, called uh, Delayla, I believe. She was eight when you first encountered her, and she had a, a glioblastoma, which is a very, I guess, highly aggressive brain tumor. Um, you cared for her for how long over how many operations? Um, I mean, it was over the course of her year and a half um, two years that it it took for the for her to finally you know succumb to a GBM. I mean it's a grade four malignant glioma and um, and it's very challenging and it's been um, to treat and it's been very challenging for many many years from you know from the moment I began my neurosurgery career to it's just been a tumor type that has eluded you know the investigators to try to figure out what to do next after it's resected. So what what's the best chemotherapy? What's the best radiation therapy? It's just a it's just a really challenging tumor to have. And um yeah, and that's what that's what Delayla had. And you got to know her and her mom Leslie over a lot of visits. What was the relationship like? Yeah. Well Leslie was an amazing woman. Um so I met Delayla really when she came in after being blind, uh, you know, for a short period of time, her mom just realized that she had gotten closer and closer to the TV and that she just couldn't see. She bumped into a wall. And, um, you know, basically we decided to take her to the OR, you know, that afternoon to when she arrived to take out this, you know, very large brain tumor. Um, and um, once we were finished and we took it out and, you know, we saw her wake up, and I held a pen out in front of her, and she named a pen, and I held some, you know, my phone or my thumb, and she named each thing. I was able to go out and tell Leslie, like, you know, she could see now. And I held out the pen that I, you know, held in front of Delayla, and I remember Leslie reaching out and touching that pen just to, like, have some kind of tactile feeling that to know that she had seen that. So... Definitely over the years and over the time of caring for somebody, you develop a relationship, you bet. You've titled this chapter Stitches. You want to explain why? Yeah. Um, so, you know, when you close a wound, you can use suture. You can use uh, staples. Um, you can use the type of suture that uh, that absorbs over time. Um, I use the standard good old-fashioned stitches that need to be clipped out because that's just to me, it, it is the best for wound healing. And so at the end of the day, those stitches need to get clipped out uh, in two or three weeks. And I just, over over the years, I just haven't been the person to take stitches out, you know, that, that the kids are scared of it. They think it's going to hurt. And we have a wonderful 
assistant that does this for us in the clinics and does it in a caring and loving way. But so, so that's kind of the background of, of, uh, stitches. And, and then, um, at the end when Delayla is, is close to death, um, and I realized that I've had the last conversation with her and with Leslie, I remember walking away because you know, she had had a, another surgery to try to help alleviate some symptoms. I, I realized that I, I was going to take those stitches out. There was nobody else was going to do it. It was mine to do. I wanted to do it. And so I just remember going into our hospital room and and just you know having her turn away and and just very carefully clipping those stitches out, like using the same amount of skills that that build up over 20 years of being a micro neurosurgeon and, um, and just sweet Leslie, just being there, holding her hand, sometimes turning her head to cry. Um, but, um, but that was a very important thing for me to do, Dave. And it was the last time you saw her. It was. Yep. Yep. It's hard to hear about this. It's hard to imagine, um, the stress and pain that comes with getting to know a kid and having the parents hope against hope that you're going to be able to beat this, and and, and sometimes you can't. Um, do you have techniques for dealing with this kind of pain and stress? Yes, uh, I. You know, I think you have to actively decouple when you're in the middle of it, particularly if um, if you um, have children and you're you know you're a pediatric neurosurgeon. It's almost like I can vision myself you know, pressing a clutch in just to kind of um, disengage that gear. Um, it's it's not that easy. I mean, that um, gear that connects you with your own kids? I mean, you don't... Yeah, that's right. You just don't to, want to just think about that this could be you? That's exactly right. You know, the, otherwise, and, and it certainly happens to me, you know, car seats are, are as important as, you know, Gunter from the Apollo missions, you know, strapping the kids in like, Daddy, I can't breathe. You know, I mean, like it, those become things like that and bike helmets and you know, having your child get on a bike and, and ride away, you know, you, there's so many stories can come back to you. So you, you have to do your best to try to, to try to disengage the parent part from the neurosurgeon part if you can. It's easier said than done. But, but at the end, when some of these stories like Delayla and, and like others who have not made it are they're very sad, um, I do kind of have this place that I go to that's just outside of my vision, um, and it's a, just kind of a beautiful green field that I think of. And, you know, I can take kind of the memories and the experience of these children and just I just can envision myself putting them in a box. It's not like I forget those children. It's just that it's a, it's a place that, that we put them. And um, I think that's a common feeling among surgeons that deal with things like life and death. You've had to talk to parents so many times under these excruciating situations again and again. Um, I mean, you must have learned over the years some things to remember. Um, have you learned things that you need to do or avoid doing when you talk to parents in these situations? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there are this child's parents and it is your job to make sure that they understand exactly what is going on. Um, that's one thing that I think is very important. As much as, you know, you want to pull the punch or as much as you don't want to have to be saying it or as much as you um, don't think that you could take it if it would if it was being told to you, um, it's still your job to make sure that they know and they understand. It doesn't mean you can't deliver that without compassion. You know, I'm, 
you know, I'm so sorry that to be having this conversation with you, but but your daughter is is really sick, and we need to get her to the operating room right now. You know, so to some extent, um, making sure they understand the situation is important. Making sure that they understand what the plan is, because now my good friend and chairman here at Vanderbilt, Reed Thompson, talks about there being peace with a plan, and it doesn't matter if that plan is sitting in a clinic talking about what the surgery is going to be. Or it doesn't matter if that is in the middle of the emergency room trying to tell somebody that you need to get their child to the operating room as fast as possible. Once you know that there is a plan, you know, then you know, then there's a degree of peace to say we are now moving towards resolution. I think that's critically important. You need to tell them not only how serious the situation is, but also the risks in trying to resolve it, right? And sometimes there are tough decisions to make there, right? Yeah. No, that's right. And um, you know, getting consent for surgery is a is the official term for saying you know talking to families or patients so that they understand what the risks of surgery are. And for some of these things like life threatening blood clots, you know, depending on where they are in the brain, it, there is some risk that, that the patient may not make it through surgery. Um, and so, you know, thankfully that's low now with the teams that we have and the preparation that's done. But at the end of the day, it is important for parents to understand that too. And so I think, you know, putting it all together, it's a making sure they understand what's going on, making sure what the risks are, you know, and then telling them what we're going to do. And then, and then being with them, you know, not, not stepping away you know, afterwards, you know, going and talking to them uh, after surgery and then, you know, rounding as much as you need to in the ICU. And, um, I think that's critically important as well. When a parent is distraught and weeping, do, do you comfort them physically? I mean, with a you know a hand to the shoulder or a hug? Do you have any guidelines about that? Well, I mean, you know, there is this um, equanimitas, you know, where there's this kind of dispassionate place that you can go to. Um, over the years, um, uh, you know, having been a patient and having children now, I think when I see somebody really having to manage a great deal of grief, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable putting a hand on their shoulder and, and just saying, I'm so sorry this is happening. And then, and then I'll let them take it from there. If, if, if a hug is what is needed, then I will give them a hug. You know, if they want me to stand with them in a prayer circle, I will certainly stand with them in a prayer circle. And it doesn't matter which, which religion of prayer circle that it is, because that is an extremely important part of, of people's lives. And so I, I think there are Ethical lines drawn, but at the end of the day, I don't think there's anything wrong with when somebody's handling grief about their child to show some some compassion and be real about it. Right. And then sometimes your words don't matter. You describe one situation in which you literally fled fearing physical violence from, from some angry parents, right? Yeah, that was um, that was a tough one. That was um, that was in my training, and um, it had to do with a, a patient who um, basically coded on the table. It was an adult patient, um, and we were able to bring her back, um, get her up to the ICU, get her stabilized, and then make plans to do the neurosurgery again because it was it was a heart issue that that uh, she'd had, and. Um, the night before we were going to do the carotid nerdorectomy where we clean out the carotid to help prevent a stroke, she basically had an arrhythmia and died. And, uh, you know, this is back in the days before cell phones. And uh, we tried to call the family and we tried to let them know. And I was walking down this long hall after 10 p.m. at night and the family kind of surrounded me. And there was, there was a lot of anger and a lot of blaming. And 
it's an incredibly sad time that brings out the worst and the best in people. But at that moment, I realized that um, that I was extremely vulnerable, and you know that my white coat did not protect me from you know the emotions that that come around um, death and dying that some people have. Yeah, yeah. You say you actually like <laughs> ran full speed away. I did from it. full speed, Dave. I mean, I can still see it in my head. I can still see that long haul. The lights, you know, the lights kind of flickering on and off. There's an exit sign at the end, and there's a door. And I'm like, if I can just make it to that door, I can close that door, and they won't be able to. It'll give me enough time to get in my car. And you know, it, it was just, um, it was a, a remarkable experience. Dr. Jay Wellen speaking with Dave Davies. Wellen's memoir, All That Moves Us, a pediatric neurosurgeon, his patients, and their stories of grace and resilience is now out in paperback. He'll be back to talk more after a short break. And later, Justin Chang will review two new supernatural horror films. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air. This message is brought to you by Apple Pay. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the Wallet app and you're good to go. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Listen to The Last Ride, the podcast investigating the disappearances of two men last seen with the same Florida sheriff's deputy. Join us for a new episode, a conversation with Marcia Williams before the 20th anniversary of her son's disappearance. It's okay for you to tell my story. If you don't know who you may be talking to, that could put their finger right there. Listen to all nine episodes of The Last Ride, part of the NPR Network, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to Dave Davies' interview with Dr. Jay Wellens. He's a pediatric neurosurgeon at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and medical director of the Surgical Outcomes Center for Kids, which he co-founded. He has a new memoir reflecting on his experiences operating on children facing critical illnesses and injuries and helping their parents cope with the wrenching emotional challenges of having a child in mortal danger. The book, All That Moves Us, a pediatric neurosurgeon, his patients, and their stories of grace and resilience is now out in paperback. You know, we're used to modern medicine uh, having these miraculous techniques, but I, I got to say, I mean, the description of your operation um, on a fetus in the womb was is pretty mind-boggling. Um, this is a surgery to correct a condition that leads to spina bifida. You want to explain what the condition is that you have to correct in this circumstance? Yep, absolutely. So, um, so spina bifida is a condition where the spinal cord basically does not form normally. Um, and uh, in the first few days after conception, uh, as, the, you know, as the cells begin to flatten out into this neural plate, that's what it's called, it then rolls up into a tube, and then our body is formed around this neural tube. Well, if that neural tube at around the 21st or 24th day um, doesn't form all the way and round itself up into this tube, then everything is formed around it, but the nerves don't work. The spinal cord is, is exposed to the outside. And there are other things that can happen from that. Not only does the child have risk, you know, loss of bowel and bladder function and difficult with walking and moving the legs, but 
something called hydrocephalus, um, which is part and parcel for what pediatric neurosurgeons deal with, um, something called hydrocephalus forms. And that's where the spinal fluid, it's actually made in the brain, gets backed up. And so um, for many, many years, this was repaired what's called postnatally, uh, which is, you know, in this 48 to 72 hours after the baby was delivered. And, um, you know, it's an operation where the, you know, you've got a 38, you know, week uh, baby or 39 week baby and, you know, you've got a sizable child and you, and you, you know, do your repair. You dissect out the thing you need to dissect, the, the neural placode, and you roll up the dura and you do all the procedure that you're supposed to do. Well, um, somebody had the big idea um, that what if we could correct this in utero um, as a fetus? Like, A, can we do it? And, and B, does it make an impact? And um, that somebody was a guy named Noel Tulipan um, who um, worked at Vanderbilt. And um, he retired um, a few years ago and ultimately passed away. But before he did, he, he passed on kind of this legacy of fetal surgery. Um, and um, it's remarkable to be a part of this team. Now, so this is a surgery that you've undertaken. And in fact, in the book, you described doing it in Australia with some surgeons there for the first time on that continent. So what's fascinating is that you're in the operating room and you're going to do the operation on the fetus, but there's another surgical team that has to help you get there, right? I mean, yeah, this is that's a right. pretty complicated thing. Kind of just in basic terms, what happens when you do this? Well, the you know the the, the parents are counseled. Uh, you know, it's determined if we if we think as a team that there would be a benefit to surgery, right? And so, um, the mom comes into the operating room. She goes to sleep. Um, lines are placed. Her stomach is prepped, and then there's an entire team called MFM, the Maternal Fetal Medicine Team, and um, and this happens across all the different um, institutions around North America and now the world that are doing fetal surgery. Uh, that have kind of rolled out, um, you know, after this particular study came out that was so, so positive. So the, the belly is prepped, an incision is made, the uterus is exposed. It's like a, it's like a you know, like an orange-pink, you know, soccer ball. Um, and the team will ultrasound the, you know, the, the dome of the uterus, find a good place to open, make the incision, expose the inside of the uterus, which is where the fetus is. And so all of a sudden it, like, 20 to 22 weeks, um, you know, we're down there looking at this this little back that's rotated into into place, and the and from that at that point uh, is when we do the repair of the back to get that closed in order to reduce some of the long term sequela that can occur from spina bifida. Right. This is where you describe finding this spine, which you describe as basically the size of three grains of rice end to end. Yeah, yeah. It is. Um, you know, it can be, depending on the size of the fetus, it can be really small, three grains of rice. It can be a little bit bigger, um, um, but most of the time it's quite small. And, um, and you know, we use our magnifying, they're called loops, these surgical loops, which are magnifying glasses um, that sit, you know, that we wear and then we have a headlight on so that we can kind of see what we're doing. I'll also tell you that as I've gotten past 50, I had to get a new pair of loops that would that would magnify it a little bit more for me so that I could see because it's so small. Yeah. You describe one of these surgeries where it went in a critically dangerous direction. The fetus was in a challenging position. You had to manipulate it a bit. What happened? 
Well, you know, there I am. You know, the the whole operating room has has done their part, and you know, in comes the pediatric neurosurgeon, and in comes my assistant, a terrific resident at the time named Becca Reynolds, who ultimately is now training, doing a fellowship year in pediatric neurosurgery. So, you know, we're beginning the process of trying to rotate the the back up so that we can have access to it, and it's hard, and it keeps falling in a different direction, but we're able to get it up to where we need it to be, and then we start to close the, you know, to dissect that abnormal neural tissue, the three grains of rice away from the skin so that we could, you know, begin to make the closure. And all of a sudden, Dave, there was just a a wash of blood over my knuckles, like a tsunami. And uh, and it was in my loops, so it was giant. You know, it was like, it was it looked like it was the whole room. And Kelly Bennett, who's the head of our team, I remember, I mean, her saying like, we've got an abruption, we need to deliver the baby. And at this point, I'm I'm holding on, you know, to the fetus. And um, she's like, Jay, you have to let go. Like, we have to deliver the baby. And so I remember just stepping back and watching as all the remainder of my team members, like, just went into the breach. You know, all of a sudden, the flash of steel, you know. That's what, when the placenta has detached, that's what had happened? Yeah, basically what happened is the placenta had begun to pull away from the uterine wall, and, um, and then, which causes a massive amount of bleeding. And placental abruption is considered an emergency for our OBGYN colleagues. And it's an emergency when you're definitely in the operating room trying to do an operation on a fetus. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what had happened. Placental abruption, it's called. So you said you became a bystander here, right? I did. I did. It took me five minutes to realize that I was still standing there holding my micro-instruments in the air as all these things were happening. Like three battles raged around me, you know. There are anesthesias just pumping in blood to keep this young mother alive. And then the maternal fetal medicine team is squeezing down on the uterus, putting these big, heavy stitches in to try to save her uterus. And then behind me, this limp little 21-week organ almost, you know, was thrust into the hands of the neonatology team that's there. And they're putting in tiny little tubes and they're breathing little bits of air and putting medicine down the tube. And you know, there's just three battles raging around me. And I literally, like you said, am a bystander. And in this case, they managed to stabilize the mom. She recovered and the fetus survived, right? And then do I, do I have this right? Two days later when the fetus is stabilized, then you went in and did the surgery? Well, actually, actually, Dave, we did it right there. You know, the wow. um, what happened is that the... Um, you know, anesthesia was like, I think we got control, guys. And uh, I saw that the MFN t- MFM team had decided that, hey, we're going to be able to keep the uterus. And so, and then I looked behind me and the neonatology team was calm. Somebody even like cracked a joke, you know, and, and I was I was just amazed, you know, at, the, at what it takes. You know, you practice for this over and over again. You know, airline pilots practice for this. Surgeons practice for this. Lots of people practice for chaos and for things to go south. But, you know, to go from like, I don't know, the camera's on you to all of a sudden being a bystander and watching the people that you worked with for 10 years, like step into the breach and fix the situation was pretty amazing. So it was a scrub nurse, Melissa, who was with us. And when we did that Australia trip a few years ago, she saw me look at the baby and she said, hey, Dr. J, I've still got your instrument sterile. I've kept him sterile on the back table. And I went over and asked the neonatology team. I said, hey, you know, what if I close the back? Could I do that while we're here? And they were like, can you do it in 20 minutes? I was like, you bet. And so that's what we did. So we, we got it closed right there in the operating room. Yep. 
Uh, is that a healthy person today, that fetus? Yeah, Ramsey's amazing. Yeah, wow. she is. Wow. Yeah, and her parents are just they're just the most amazing people. They were just grateful the whole time. It's just been a, a series of, of just shared gratitude between our teams and the families and getting pictures of Ramsey. You know, it's just terrific, Dave. Let me reintroduce you. We're going to take another break here. We are speaking with Dr. Jay Wellens. He is a pediatric neurosurgeon at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. His new memoir is All That Moves Us. We'll continue our conversation after this short break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Caitlin, a teen reeling from her parents' divorce, steals a valuable bird in order to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner that leads her to a new outlook on life. Don't miss Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Rated PG 13. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. You recently published a piece in Time magazine, an op-ed piece about treating children with wounds from gunfire. Uh, You note that you and other neurosurgeons that you know essentially say if politicians could see what we see in the operating room, you might look at this issue a little differently. Over the years, have you seen more gunshot victims and different kinds of injuries? You know, I've seen, you know, some really horrible injuries from gunshot wounds. And it's not a it's not specific to assault weapons, um, but I've I've seen some uh, um, injuries to the brain and or to the spinal cord, leaving you know a girl paralyzed, uh, quadriplegic on a ventilator, uh, and this has just been part and parcel of a society that that has guns in them. Uh, and I grew up as a son of the South, you know. I, I talk about in the piece about how I'd recently found my old childhood twenty-two rifle that I used to take with my dad squirrel hunting, and I taught my kids how to shoot it, taught them how to clean it, made sure they understood about how to be safe around it. But, you know, at the same time, on the top of that old gun cabinet was a bunch of trophies from my childhood that my, you know, wonderful parents had kept. And one was the Little League team um, that I'd played for um, as a young boy. There were 14 players on that team, and the, the baseball that was sitting on the trophy was signed by all of us. Two of those 14 kids died from gun violence before the age of 18. So, you know, that was 40-plus years ago. So nowadays what we see with these assault weapons is that there's so much damage. Um, You know, I have a friend, John Martin, who is the chief of pediatric neurosurgery up at Connecticut Children's Hospital. And uh, after the Newtown shootings, he describes them all gowned up and waiting in the hospital for the children to get there until they realized that nobody was 
really coming because so many people had died. And I just have a hard time understanding why we need these assault weapons within society. Um, you know, they're designed to, to me, it's three things. You know, they're high capacity, they're maximal velocity, and they're low recoil. And the low recoil means that you can stay on target and just pump a bunch of shots into the same place. And, you know, that's a lot of destruction, and that's a lot of destruction on a child. And a child's not going to survive that. And the relationship that medicine and war over the years where, where we have learned things from each war, we have able to um, bring that back to society and say, hey, we know now how to dress a wound, or we know now the role of antibiotics or the role of steroids or resuscitation. Um, but when these things happen and so many kids die at the scene, there's nothing that we're learning. There's nothing to bring back to society because we don't have the ability to, to say, okay, well, we've now learned X, Y, or Z. It just doesn't happen because of the destructive force. Another issue in the news, which has medical implications, of course, is the Supreme Court's overturning the Roe versus Wade ruling. Do you anticipate that that will affect your job at all? Man, I got to tell you, like I was just um, three weeks ago, I was up giving the Mike Scott lecture at Boston Children's Hospital in Harvard. And the very first question that came at the end of my 50-minute talk was, what do you think is going to happen if the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade in terms of termination for significant neural, you know, neurologic deficits or defects? And so it is on people's minds for sure. Um, and uh, I will tell you a, a story about my niece. And my niece is, um, has allowed me to talk about this and I've in the process of writing a piece about it. Um, but my niece's name is Chapel, And um, Chapel called me one day when after being pregnant for a few weeks to say, I'm with the OB. We've just done our 13-week ultrasound, and they say that there's a problem with the brain. And uh, they say that I need to come see you, Uncle Jay. And um, we get her into the fetal clinic. We do the ultrasound. I'm right there with them the whole time. This, you know, my niece, who I've known since she was a baby, my children walked in her wedding. Um, and um, there's this encephalocele. It's giant. And the entire brain is on the outside of the skull, and it's kind of everted. So now it's also at the mercy of the amniotic fluid, which is that caustic fluid that gets more caustic over time, which is why fetal surgery for spina bifida makes a difference. So, you know, in that scenario, the choices are to have a child that um, is ultimately born that's in constant pain, that has no ability to communicate or see or interact with the world around them. They're in a wheelchair, the type of wheelchair that holds your neck still. Um, they have G-tube feedings. And over time, they never grow up from being a baby. Um, they, are, they become adults who have that degree of care that's needed. And um, in situations like this, before with other patients, we've talked about termination, and that's what we talked about with my niece. And, you know, fast forward the story two years I'm in the hospital during pandemic with a healthy baby that they've had and second baby that they've had. And it's just a tremendously different path. And I just I can't tell you how much I think that this ruling is going to affect um, what it's like for families to have these substantial neurologic, cardiac, urologic, seals where the gut's outside the body that it's hard to be fixed sometimes. Like we're going to see a lot more of these now, and we're going to have to, as a society, understand that we're going to have to take care of these children. That's our job. So 
yes, I think it's going to have an impact. Well, Dr. Jay Wellens, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Dave. It's been a really tremendous honor for me to be here with you today and be on Fresh Air. Dr. Jay Wellens spoke with Dave Davies. Wellens is a professor of neurological surgery at the Monroe Carroll Jr. Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt and the Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And he's medical director of the Surgical Outcomes Center for Kids, which he co-founded. His memoir, All That Moves Us, a pediatric neurosurgeon, his patients, and their stories of grace and resilience is now out in paperback. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, the automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares how Betterment's innovation can help Americans save. The real innovation for Betterment about a decade ago was taking a set of tools that were used by the ultra-wealthy and making them accessible to the average investor. And that includes tax strategies, that includes dollar-cost averaging, that includes taking a long-term view and not getting distracted by market volatility. These are all sort of tricks of the trade. And what Betterment did is they basically said, no matter the amount of money you have, it's always good to be invested. It's always good to start early. It's always good to save. And the power of being consistent in your habits is really the path to long-term wealth. Learn more about automated investing and saving at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance not guaranteed. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. This week is the release of Haunted Mansion, a new live-action comedy based on the popular Disneyland ride. And Talk to Me, an Australian supernatural thriller about teenagers dabbling in the occult. Our film critic Justin Chang says that despite their differences, both movies are fundamentally about characters trying to ease their grief by communing with the dead. Here's his review. After a family trip to Disneyland last year, my daughter told me that her favorite ride was the Haunted Mansion. It's long been a favorite of mine, too, an oasis of spooky, silly fun at the so-called happiest place on Earth. Given how popular the ride has been since it opened in 1969, it's perhaps unsurprising that it's inspired not one, but two live-action Disney movies. Neither movie is particularly good, although the new one, directed by Justin Simeon of Dear White People fame, is at least an improvement on the dreadful Eddie Murphy vehicle from 2003. The always excellent Lakeith Stanfield stars as a moody physicist with an interest in the paranormal. He's one of a team of amateur Ghostbusters, investigating the weird goings-on at a manor house not far from New Orleans. Rosario Dawson plays a doctor who's recently moved into the house with her nine-year-old son. And there's Owen Wilson as a shifty priest, Danny DeVito as a cranky professor, and Tiffany Haddish as a bumbling psychic. In this scene, she talks about the dangers of confronting the evil spirit in their midst. And let me tell you, it will Fight back. Ghosts like to fight. For example, 1813, a group of mediums went into the house just a little north of here. It took 21 days. They worked their butts off and they got that deceased owner out of there. But they were all found... uh, How old are you? Nine. Okay, I'm talking organs on the outside. Nine is young. It's It's not that young, girl. I was driving by nine. Look, I know that might have been an extreme example. Yes. But they were a group of amateurs. 
I am a professional, okay? I'm bona fide and qualified, certified, and I can get rid of what died. Haunted Mansion has a busy, forgettable plot that exists mainly to set up all the macabre sight gags you might remember from the ride. The walking suit of armor, the self-playing pipe organ, the walls and paintings that mysteriously stretch like taffy. None of this is even remotely scary, or meant to be scary, which is fine. It's more bothersome that none of it is especially funny, either. And while the house is an impressive piece of cobwebs and candlesticks production design, Simeon hasn't figured out how to make it feel genuinely atmospheric. The movie's saving grace is Stanfield's affecting performance as a guy whose interest in the supernatural turns out to be rooted in personal loss. I don't want to oversell this movie by suggesting that at heart it's a story of grief, but Stanfield is the one thing about it that's still haunting me days later. If you're looking for a much, much scarier movie about how grief can open a portal between the living and the dead, the new Australian shocker, Talk to Me, is in select theaters this week. A critical favorite at this year's Sundance Film Festival, it stars the superb newcomer Sophie Wilde as Mia, an outgoing teenager who's recently lost her mom. One night at a party with her friends, she gets sucked into a daredevil game involving a severed hand, embalmed and encased in ceramic. This hand apparently once belonged to a mystic. Anyone who grips it and says, talk to me, can conjure the spirit of a dead person and invite it to possess their body, but only for 90 seconds max. Any longer than that, and the spirit might want to stay. The possession scenes are terrifically creepy, all dilated pupils and ghoulish makeup. But it's even creepier to see the effect of this game on Mia and her friends as they start filming each other in their demonic state and posting the videos on social media. Talk to Me is the first feature directed by Danny and Michael Philippou, twin brothers who got their start making horror comedy shorts for YouTube. And they've hit on a clever idea in turning this paranormal activity into a kind of recreational drug. But the high wears off very fast one night when one of the spirits they're talking to claims to be Mia's mother, a development that leaves Mia reeling and turns this party game into a full-blown nightmare. As a visceral piece of horror filmmaking, Talk to Me can be ruthlessly effective. Even on a second viewing, there were scenes I could only watch through my fingers. The Philippou brothers have a polished sense of craft, though they're not always in control of their narrative, which sometimes falters as Mia herself begins to unravel. But Wilde's performance more than picks up the slack. She makes a great scream queen, but she also pinpoints the emotional desperation of someone held captive by grief. The movie takes something most of us can relate to, what it means to lose someone you love, and pushes it to its most twisted conclusion. Justin Chang is the film critic for the L.A. Times. On Monday's show, comedian Leanne Morgan. After discovering her passion for stand-up later in life and finding the time after raising her kids to pursue it, Tennessee native Leanne Morgan has found success by making fun of everyday life, from motherhood and marriage to menopause and her friends over 50 dating on the apps. Morgan has a self-produced comedy special on Netflix called I'm Every Woman. I hope you can join us.
keep up with what's on the show and to get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Shorak. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support from Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Charlie Kyer. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krinzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. This message comes from NPR sponsor, ShipBob. E-commerce logistics making you question why you started your business? Time to outsource fulfillment to the experts over at ShipBob. Get a free quote at shipbob.com. ShipBob. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.